My name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here at Desert Springs. Uh, pastor Ryan, our preaching pastor, has been on a writing sabbatical for the last few weeks. He's working on uh, a commentary, collected, uh, collected works on John Owen. And so you can pray for him as he continues in that work. They're actually out of town this morning, Ryan and his family. So um, if you have been wondering where Ryan's been over the last couple of weeks, that's where. Don't worry, he's fine. He'll be back. Uh, but we are continuing in this series in the gospel according to Matthew. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. So this is Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. We'll also have these words up on the screen behind me. Let me read these verses for us now. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is God's word. So, as we jump into our text this morning, it's important for us to see that this is the start of a new section in the gospel according to Matthew. Verse 1 of chapter 8 is served as something of a transition or even an introduction to this new section that we're going to be in for the next few weeks. Verse 1 says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. I've already made this point several times as we've been studying the gospel according to Matthew, that Matthew is at pains to show us that Jesus is the new and better Moses. And as a better Moses, Jesus has for the last three chapters been on top of a mountain giving to us a new and better law. It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Well, now Jesus is coming down the mountain. 
And just like we have seen these parallels to Moses' ministry all up into this point, it is helpful for us to consider how there might be parallels here to the Exodus story, to that time when Moses is coming down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments. If you remember there in the book of Exodus, it was when Moses came down Mount Sinai that the first thing he came upon was what? The incident with the golden calf and as a result of their idolatry the people's idolatry there is a plague that breaks out against the people so when Moses comes down the mountain healthy people get sick as a consequence of their idolatry well now when Jesus comes down the mountain the true and better Moses what happens sick people get healthy as a consequence of their faith in the Messiah that's pretty cool huh There's a lot more that's going to come. But remember just last week that we saw that the Sermon on the Mount concludes in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 and 29 with this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He had authority. Remember throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps on saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And then what would follow is this teaching from Jesus himself. He's not appealing to any outside authority. This is his own authoritative teaching. And it always flips our conceptions of righteousness on its head. He is confronting our Phariseeism and our hypocritical spirits. And then at the very end of the sermon, Jesus tells his listeners that they should build their lives on his teaching. The way that a wise man would build his house on a rock and not on shifting sand. That's an authoritative statement and it astonishes the crowds. He teaches like one who has authority. But is it true? Does Jesus really have this authority to command our lives like this? I mean, who is this man? How do we know? Well, this new section that we're in, chapters 8 and 9, they answer that question for us. Chapters 8 and 9 are all about the authority of Jesus. Jesus has come down from the mountain, and now, over the next several weeks, we're going to see him going around exercising his authority to heal the sick, to command nature, to cast out demons, to cause the paralyzed to walk, to forgive sins, and even to raise the dead. And what's the point of all of this? All of these things that Jesus is going around doing in these next two chapters, it's the stuff that only God can do. And so it is proving to us that Jesus does have authority to command our lives because Jesus is God himself. And what a God he is. That's what's so great about these two chapters. It's not only that they show us again and again that Jesus is God because he does the things that only God can do and therefore speaks with God's authority, but in these miracles, we see what God is like. We see God's heart on full display, his heart on display for sinners like you and me. And that's especially true in these three healing stories that we're going to look at this week. So let's get into these three healings. The first is the cleansing of a leper. So this is verses one through four. 
So remember again, verse one, it says, great crowds are following Jesus as he comes down off the mountain. There's a lot of people following him. They're watching him expectantly. They want to see what happens next. And what does happen is very surprising. In verse two, it says, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. In the ancient world, leprosy was a term that could refer to any variety of skin diseases ranging from fairly minor ones to uh, what we would today think of as leprosy, what doctors call Hansen's disease. In Luke's gospel, Luke, that gospel writer, was himself a physician. He said that this man, and when he tells the story, was full of leprosy. So we can assume that he's got a very serious case of this uh, skin condition. And in the ancient world, this was pretty much the worst disease that you could get. Aside from the fact that they had no medical technology or anything to help in a situation like this. I mean, leprosy was, was horrific in terms of the symptoms that you would have these horrible lesions on your skin and discoloration and rashes, but that it was actually a bacterial infection that started from the inside and it would lead to numbness in your body and the deterioration of your bones. And so you, the inside, the cartilage in your nose would start to wear away and your nose would cave in. And, and you've often heard of lepers losing their extremities. Well, that's because their, their hands and their feet are numb. They can't feel anything anymore. And so they would actually rub off and wear down their fingers and their toes. It was a horrible disease, but that wasn't the worst part of it. What was even worse about having the condition of leprosy was that as soon as you had leprosy, you were immediately kicked out of the community and you were covered with shame. You were a complete outcast and everyone kept you as far away as they could because they didn't want to catch this contagious disease from you. In the book of Leviticus, the Old Testament book of Leviticus, there's actually two whole chapters dedicated to the topic of leprosy. And all of these processes for how the Levitical priests were supposed to examine the people of Israel to look at their skin conditions and to determine if it was this serious kind of leprosy or if they had been cleansed. And then there was this whole process of purification and offering sacrifices and all these things that they had to do. But, but if you were examined by the priests and the priests determined that you had this, this incurable kind of leprosy, this contagious, horrific kind of leprosy, well then this is what they would do. This is Leviticus chapter 13. The Lord's law says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, this was a, a necessity given the contagiousness of this disease, but, but still to be a leper would be a, just an absolutely tragic existence. You were alone, you were ashamed, you were always having to walk around shouting, declaring that you were unclean, you were denied access to the temple. You could not come anywhere near the right worship of God because you were ritually unclean and you stayed unclean until the disease went away, which it never did. And in verse two of our text, behold, a man full of leprosy comes walking right up to Jesus in front of this great crowd and falls down before him 
falls down before Jesus the way that you would fall down before a king or the way that you would fall down before God himself. And just imagine what the crowd's reaction is. This unclean man walking right up to this authoritative teacher. But then more than that, he makes a fascinating statement in verse two. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Might be better to translate that as, Lord, if you are willing, or Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. And now notice, this leper does not come to Jesus making demands, does he? No, he comes to Jesus with humility, with reverence. He says, Jesus, if you want to, you can heal me. What's the implication there? Lord, if you don't want to, that's your right. You're the one with the authority, Lord. I am entirely at your mercy. Your will be done. But I know that if you want to, you can heal me. You hear in that that it's a confession of faith? What he thinks about Jesus as he approaches Jesus, that Jesus does have the authority, that Jesus is somebody that you can go to and ask these things. Lord, if you want to, you can heal me. And what's Jesus' response? In verse three, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will, or I am willing, or I do want to be clean. In the gospel according to Mark, when he tells the story, he adds that Jesus was filled with pity or compassion when he sees this man. Jesus is moved to great emotion, to, to a deep desire to help someone who is hurting. Jesus does want to. He does want to heal this man. And not only does he want to, but he is able to. He says, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. That's authority. That's God's stuff. He has authority over diseases. But did you notice this? That Jesus didn't just say, be clean, and the man was cleansed. What did Jesus do? He touched him. He touched this man. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that, right? We're going to see in the very next story that Jesus can heal people from who knows how far away. That Jesus doesn't even have to be in your house for him to heal you. Jesus doesn't have to touch this man, but he does. Why? Because that is what this man has been deprived of for years. Human contact. Intimacy. To be treated with dignity and love. To be treated like a person. That's what Jesus did for this man. Because that's what our God is like. He's not a God who's far away. He's not a God who's too good to come near to us. No, he's God with us. Do you remember this? Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. God is so with us that he touches this unclean man in order to heal him. Jesus touched him before he was healed. Jesus touched him while he still had leprosy. And this itself is a massive theological statement. 
for any other Jewish man to touch a leper, to even accidentally bump up against a leper, well, then that would have made them ritually unclean as well. And then they would have to go through this whole process of purifying themselves and cleansing themselves. This is why the lepers had to shout, unclean, unclean. And they would have to stay at least six feet away from everybody else. Because if you touched a leper, you became unclean. But not Jesus. No, when Jesus touches this unclean man, that man's uncleanness doesn't transfer to Jesus. What happens? Jesus' cleanness transfers to that man. And he is healed. He's healed immediately. And now if that's true of leprosy, how much more is this true of our own sin? When Kristen and I still lived in Texas, we were a part of a, a small church plant there. This was a while ago. This was before we had kids. And it was our turn to serve in the children's ministry, to serve with these elementary-aged kids. And this was actually the first time that we were serving with these kids. And it turns out this was the story that they gave us to teach the kids, to, to tell them the story about Jesus cleansing the leper. And so here I am, you know, I'm right in the middle of seminary, and I don't have any kids, and I'm in this room full of elementary kids. And I say, okay, who knows what a leper is? <laughs> and one of the kids raises his hand, and he says, it's a big cat with spots. I said, no, 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 that's a leopard. <laughs> no, what a leper is, kids, it's someone who has this horrible disease. And what it does is it starts making your skin rub off and you get all these cuts all over you and then your fingers and toes and your nose fall off. <laughs> and then this little girl raises her hand in the middle of the class and, and she goes, have I had my shots for this? <laughs> And then I, I start realizing what I've just done, and I look over at Kristen, and she's like, are you kidding me? This is how you tell that story? So I realize I have terrified this whole class of kids, and I'm trying to save the lesson, I'm trying to, and I'm trying to bring it back. And I said, no, 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 don't worry, sweetie. Uh, there's medicine for this. Actually, it's really, really rare. There's a cure for it now. You're fine. But you know what? There's actually something that's way worse than leprosy that you need to worry about. And she says, there is. <laughs> and I say, yeah, it's your sin. And then she goes, I don't think that is worse. <laughs> so I totally blew it. I just, I shared the gospel. Thankfully, this little girl's dad was one of our elders. And so I think he cleared her out, you know, cleared her, cleared her up after that. And she's fine. She'll be fine. Okay. But I still stand by the statement that we learned something about our sin from considering this disease of leprosy. And we learn something about our God and how he treats this man with leprosy because our sin is very much like this disease. It's an incurable infection that starts on the inside and it works its way out into these symptoms in our lives and it causes us to be numb and unfeeling. It separates us from others. It hurts our relationships with other people. It even cuts us off from our access to God. Our sin makes us unclean before a pure and holy God. And if left untreated, our sin will lead to death. And just like leprosy makes someone feel shame and feel like they're an outcast and that they're unclean, and that no one could ever love them because of this condition that they have. Our sin can make us feel that way, can't it? 
It can make us feel like so much guilt and so much shame and no one could ever love me because of these things that I've done or these things that have been done to me, this stuff that is wrong with me. How could anyone love me, much less a pure and holy God? That's what our sin is like. And yet Jesus treats you and your sin the same way he treated this leper with his leprosy. Jesus is not repulsed by you. Jesus is not afraid of you. Jesus is not grossed out by you. In fact, Jesus sees you in your sin and in your guilt and in your shame, and he has compassion on you. And he comes near to you because of your sin, because he can heal you, and he wants to heal you. And he wants to be near you. He will reach out and touch you and be with you forever and ever because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that includes you and that includes me. And he really does heal us of our disease of sin. He heals us by dying on the cross for us as a substitute and giving his cleanness to us when we believe in him. He takes our sin away and he gives his righteousness to you. So when you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, when you come to him and you bow down and you say, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I assure you, Every single time, Jesus will say, I am willing. Be clean. Be forgiven of your sins. Now, if you look at verse 4, after he cleans this man, Jesus says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he's referring, again, to the book of Leviticus. And I don't think that this is a case of Jesus trying to hide his identity try to keep anything a secret because he did it in the middle of a whole crowd of people. I think what Jesus is saying when he says, don't go tell anybody else, he says, this is really urgent. Go straight to the temple. Do the stuff that Moses commanded you. There's a connection here to Jesus's authority and our obedience. I think it's important to note that it was not this man's obedience that led to his healing, but after he was healed, he is obedient. He goes to the temple. But again, this is Jesus saying, like he said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is just one more instance of him fulfilling that because what's going to happen? The man's going to go to the temple and he's going to offer himself to the priests and they're going to do their whole thing and examine him. And what are they going to declare? Wow, you're clean. How did that happen? Jesus. He's going to testify to Jesus. Because those priests, those Levitical priests, all the authority that they had was to look at someone and decide whether or not they were clean. But our great high priest, Jesus, he has the authority to make us clean. And he has. And it's just so cool to think about what the rest of this guy's life would have been like. I mean, every day after this. He gets to go again into the temple, which he had been barred from for so long. He gets to go in and he gets to worship his God the way that he has wanted to for so many years. There are no longer any boundaries for this man. And that was one more really cool parallel to the Exodus story. When Moses comes down off of the mountain, he brought the Ten Commandments, but he also brought the plan for the tabernacle. 
It's a very, very important part of the book of Exodus. And the tabernacle was a great thing at the time for Israel because it said this is how an unclean people can have access to worship a holy God. But everything about the tabernacle and then later the temple, when they built the temple, it was all about who could get that access. Remember this? That the high priest was the only one who could actually go into the room where God's presence was. And then there were just these concentric circles of who could have access. Well, at the very, very outside were lepers. And also on the outside were Gentiles. And also on the outside were women. And who are the very first people that Jesus comes to when he comes down the mountain? Again, do you see how cool this is? That he comes to a leper. And next we're gonna see that he comes to a Gentile. So let's look at this next healing story. This is verses five to 13. This is healing the centurion's servant. Verse five says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was in charge of what's called a century, which as the name suggests is a fighting unit of about 100 soldiers. So this guy was something like a captain or a lieutenant in our own military. So here he comes. And again, we have somebody approaching Jesus. In verse six, just like the leper, he addresses him as Lord. So he too is coming with humility and reverence. And this is really remarkable in this man's case because he wasn't a social outcast. He wasn't on a low rung of society, at least in the world that he lived in. He was somebody important, but he didn't let any of his worldly attainments or his status deceive him into thinking that he's got some kind of right to go before God, any more right than the lowliest in society has. So he comes just like the leper. Then he too makes a statement not a demand. It's not even a question. He just says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. It's got echoes. Lord, if you're willing, you can heal him. And then look at verse seven. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. So this is the same thing. We see Jesus' complete willingness to heal someone in need. He's demonstrating his compassion and his pity for those people who are hurting. But the real significance of verse 7 may be lost on us because this man, this Roman centurion, is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. So that means to a Jewish man like Jesus, he would have been considered unclean, just like the leper was unclean. Again, Gentiles were not allowed to come into the temple complex. There was a wall and there was this whole court that was called the court of the Gentiles and they could go there, but they were still yards away from where the action was. So you just had to look over this wall and try and see what was going on. There was a boundary for this man and his worship of God. And then as far as Jews related to Gentiles, Jews could not go into the home of a Gentile. That would have been, again, ritually defiling for them. For a Jewish man to go into the home of a Gentile would have made him unclean. But we have already seen that uncleanness is not a problem for Jesus, is it? He makes unclean things clean, not the other way around. And so he says, I'm going to come. I'll heal him. And that's surprising in itself that Jesus is willing to go into this man's house. But verse 8 is even more surprising. In verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. 
You can circle right in there, that word authority. Remember, that's what this whole section is about. And this centurion gets Jesus's authority because he is a man with authority. He understands how this works. He's saying to Jesus, look, I get it. I say to somebody, go do something, and they do it. My words have power. My words can get something done. Sure, I have to do it through another person, and sure, it might take some time, but my words have power because I have authority. So if my words have power, Jesus, how much more do your words have power? If I can make something happen with a word, surely you can, Lord. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that time very moment. So it's another immediately. It just happened. Again, what the centurion believed, what he thought about Jesus was true. Jesus does have the authority to heal with only a word. And this healing story by itself, it's, it's marvelous. He just says the word and this man is healed at that very instant from how far away we don't know. That's marvelous. But apparently that's not the most marvelous thing that happens in the story. And this is the word that Matthew uses in verse 10, right? Jesus marveled. What's he marveling about? And that word marveled, it can sound like Jesus is surprised at what has happened here. Of course, that's not right because Jesus is God. He's not surprised by anything. But when it says that Jesus is marveling, what he's doing is he's calling our attention to the fact that what is happening here is marvelous. You should be amazed by this. This is incredible. What is it? What's the marvelous thing that has happened? Well, it's not just that someone would understand the nature of Jesus' authority and believe in it, but that is marvelous. And we shouldn't get tired of this. Do we marvel at God's work of grace in other people's lives? Do we marvel when someone who, who otherwise shouldn't get it suddenly realizes who Jesus is and bows down and worships their Lord and their cleansed of their sins? Do we marvel at that? Do you marvel at that when it happens in your own life? We should marvel at God's grace in saving sinners. But no, what's really marvelous to Jesus is that this man, this man who gets Jesus' authority more than anybody else in the whole gospel of Matthew up to this point, this man isn't Jewish. He's a Gentile. Now you would expect a deeply religious Jew, someone like a Pharisee, you would expect them to recognize the Messiah when he's standing right there in front of them. But they keep, miss I'm sorry, they keep missing it. They're struggling they're struggling to see the Messiah because everything that Jesus has been teaching so far, it's just contrary to their whole worldview. It's contrary to their whole understanding of how righteousness works and who God is and how we obey God's law. They don't get it. But then here's this Roman centurion and he's got the ears to hear. He's got the eyes to see what's happening right in front of him. And it's marvelous. This Gentile man understands who Jesus is and understands his authority. And this is what Jesus explains to his disciples in verses 11 and 12. 
He's saying that this is a foreshadowing. This man coming and recognizing Jesus' lordship, this is, this is a foreshadowing of the full inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. This has been a theme that Matthew, remember Matthew was written to Jews primarily. This is a Jewish gospel. And Matthew has been beating this drum over and over and over again that the Messiah is not just a Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah of all of the nations. He is the light to the Gentiles. And he's going to say that the church, as the people of the Messiah, we're to go out to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. So in verse 11, Jesus is guaranteeing our missional success. He's saying that what's going to happen is that people are going to come from the east and from the west. This is Gentiles from the very end of the earth. They are going to come into the kingdom of heaven. And they're going to be a part of the Israel of God. They're going to sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. They're going to be fully included in this kingdom of heaven, not just the ethnic children of Abraham, but everyone who believes in Abraham's God and Abraham's seed, Jesus. And all of this is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, the covenant with Abraham. So all of these Gentiles are going to get brought into the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 12, what's he say? The sons of the kingdom, they're going to be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Elsewhere, we know that that's Jesus clearly talking about hell when he uses that description. And so what's he saying here? Who are the sons of the kingdom that are going to go to hell? What he's talking about is those people who think that they are in the kingdom of God only because they had Abraham as their father. So he's saying the sons of the kingdom are those Jews who will miss out on the kingdom because they have missed the king. They don't believe, they don't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. So instead, they're just going to keep on relying on their own ethnicity. They're going to keep relying on their own adherence to works as the reason that they get to go into the kingdom. And in so doing, they're going to completely deny Jesus, the crucified Messiah. They're going to deny his work. And Jesus says, they're going to be cast out forever. They're going to be those who, like we saw last week, are going to stand in front of Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you because you never knew me. But this centurion does, even though he's a Gentile. He gets it. Now let me be really clear about what Jesus say, is saying here, because these are uh, thick verses. Okay, what Jesus is not saying is that all Jews will be cast out. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that any more than he's saying that all Gentiles will be brought into the kingdom. He's not even saying that the Gentile church is now somehow replacing Israel, okay? Because it's going to be Jews that Jesus sends out to the ends of the earth to invite Gentiles to come in and sit down at the table. Just the table's going to get really, really crowded with Gentiles very quickly. They're being grafted into this tree that has the patriarchs' roots that Paul says in Romans. But what's the point that Jesus is getting here? All of this has to do with faith. He says, I've never met somebody with faith like this in all of Israel. This man who recognizes who Jesus is and the authority that he has. This is all a matter of faith. The way that you come into the kingdom of heaven, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, is that by believing Jesus is the savior of the world and that he has brought us all together in one new people of God. 
And so what this means for you, this story of the centurion and his servant being healed, what this means is that there are, no, there are now no barriers of access to Christ. Again, there was a barrier in the temple. The Gentiles couldn't get in. But Ephesians chapter 2 says, Now the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. So thankfully, Christianity is not just a religion for Jews. Yeah, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he gets to be our Messiah too. But this also means that Christianity isn't just a religion for Westerners or Europeans or Americans or white people or rich people or pretty people. Christianity is for everyone. There are no barriers of access to Christ. And so there are no barriers in the church. And that's what this second story, this healing of the centurion servant, that's what this teaches us. So now let's look at this last story, the raising of Peter's mother-in-law. So this is verses 14 to 17. In verse 14, it says, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now, look at that closely. Look at what this is saying. Peter was married. Peter had a mother-in-law. You know how that works, right? His wife had a mom. So Peter was married. We always forget this. Actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about how we have the right to get married, even apostles, he says it sounds like most, if not all, of the apostles were married. And he specifically says Peter took along a believing wife. I think that means that she went with him on all of his missionary endeavors. So Peter was married, and he had this wife that went along with him on their journey. Actually, tradition says that when Peter was martyred in Rome, his wife was martyred right there with him. We don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's very clear that Peter was married, and so it just stops, and it makes you think of all of the women and all of the men who are not named in the Bible, but nevertheless were valuable helpers in the work of mission and the work of ministry, and, and that were invaluable in this work of the gospel spreading out to the nations. I think it's just so cool. I can't wait to meet Peter's wife, right? So Jesus goes into Peter's house, and he sees his wife's mother lying sick with a fever, and then in verse 15, it says, he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Okay, so here too, there's lots of parallels. You see these three stories are, are, have a lot to do with each other. Actually, the, the story with the leper and then this story with Peter's mother-in-law, I think, have a lot of parallels because they're kind of bookends to the story about the centurion and the inclusion of the Gentiles, which is Matthew's big theme here. So you can see, just like with the cleansing of the leper and just like this caring for this Gentile that Jesus here and going to a woman is caring for another low status person who ordinarily would have been kept from full access in the temple. So again, the, the tabernacle, the temple of God is now coming to these people who are otherwise cast out. I mean, it's just so cool. So he comes to a woman here. And again, there is a touch. He takes her hand. So there's this closeness and there's this intimacy. And then also there's this immediate healing. He takes her hand and then she gets right up. And then as she gets up, just like with the leper, there's an obedience that flows out of her healing. So she gets up and she starts serving Jesus. So there's a lot of parallels, but there's one really big difference in this story from all the other ones. Did you notice it? That she doesn't approach Jesus. She doesn't say anything to Jesus because she can't. Jesus sees her in her sickness. Jesus approaches her and he heals her. And so many people have noted that this story is especially a beautiful picture of the gospel. That again, all of us are sick 
with sin and our sickness is such that, well, Ephesians says you're actually dead in your trespasses and your sins. And so you can't do anything. You're lying there in this fever state. You can't do anything to cry out even for help. You can't do anything. And Jesus sees us in our inability and he comes to us. And just like when he raises Peter's mother-in-law, she gets up and she starts to serve him. So when Jesus comes and he raises you to walk in newness of life, that's what we do for the rest of our lives as we serve Jesus by making disciples. So it's a beautiful picture of the gospel here, Peter's mother-in-law. But now look at verse 16. After this happens, okay, and word has just been spreading and spreading about all the things that Jesus is doing. It says, verse 16, that evening they brought to him many more who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. So, so many people are coming to him and he's healing them. And he's casting out demons. Actually, in a couple of weeks, we've got a passage that deals a lot with casting out demons. So we're just going to wait to talk about demons until we get to that passage. I've got a lot of research to do before we get to that. So. But he's healing all of these people. And then now look at verse 17. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So this is kind of like a a mini conclusion. He's got these three stories and then he concludes it and he's gonna give us some more to think about next week. But he concludes it just like he's been doing a lot through the book by saying this is all the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then he quotes the prophecy. So here he's saying this is in fulfillment of Isaiah, in fulfillment of the passage that Tim read for us this morning in Isaiah 52 and 53, especially Isaiah 53 verse four. Now when we read it today, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now what Matthew is doing, what it seems like he's doing is he's providing his own translation of the Hebrew. And these Hebrew words that he translates illnesses and diseases, it's a fine translation. These words are broad and in Hebrew they can be used to refer to illnesses and diseases. But what Matthew is doing is he is narrowing in and he's focusing in on one particular way that Jesus fulfills that prophecy of the suffering servant of the servant who grows up before us like a, like a sprouts and he doesn't have any majesty, he doesn't have any form that we would look at him and then he is wounded for our transgressions, that he is killed for our iniquities and all of the sin and the chastisement that we deserve for our sin, all of that was placed on the servant and he suffered in his place. And Matthew is connecting that suffering that Jesus did on the cross to our illnesses and our diseases. And so we have to ask, well, what do those things have to do with each other? And some Christians, I think, get very off on this point. And so we have to be really, really careful, especially when we come to stories about healings and about miracles. Okay, some Christian teachers you will hear, they will, they will connect these verses and they will say that what this means is that the Christian life and life in the kingdom should be exemplified by miracles like these that the miracles that Jesus is doing, these things should be normal for us in our Christian experience, that we should expect healings and we should expect exorcisms and that we should even expect raising the dead. And then what they will say, whether explicitly or implicitly, is that if you're not seeing divine healing in your life, then you're probably doing something wrong or that there's something wrong with your faith. 
when you hear these teachers teach this, they'll actually very commonly bring up Matthew chapter 8 and they'll connect it to Isaiah 53 and they'll say, it says right here, Jesus bore your diseases on the cross. And so what they will say is that a full gospel is not only that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, but he also secured your physical healing on the cross because he bore your illnesses there. And so he secured this right of healing for you. And so all you have to do if you want to be healed is march right up to Jesus and name your disease and claim your reward of physical healing. And it's yours because he won it for you on the cross. And so I have to say in response to that, is that the posture that any of these people who were actually healed in the Bible took towards Jesus? Did they walk up to Jesus and name and claim anything? No. They went up to Jesus in complete humility and they said, Lord, if it's your will, you can heal me. But they didn't expect, they didn't demand anything of Jesus. And the bigger point is that that's not what Matthew's trying to get at. That's not the point that Isaiah was trying to make. What these people call a full gospel is actually a truncated gospel because it's missing the bigger and the better picture in what these stories are trying to teach us. The point that Matthew is making here isn't, hey, look at all of these miracles. Look at all of these healings. You should want more of those. The point that Matthew is making is, hey, look at Jesus, who's doing all of these miracles, who's doing all of these healings. You should want more of him. And that is our hope. And there's a lot about divine healing that I could talk about, and, and we just don't have time But surely passages like this raise good questions for us about the nature of healing, even miraculous healing in this life. If I can, can I just give you Desert Springs Church one exhortation from these passages that I think we need to hear in particular? I don't think that we're real unclear on the nature of divine healing and name it, claim it theology, but I think what we need to remember is that God can still heal diseases, that God still does miracles, And that we should believe that. And that we should ask for that. And that there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with asking God according to his will to heal people. Now, I don't think that there are healers today, but we have one healer, amen. And we should go to him a lot more. We should knock on his door a lot more and ask God, heal these diseases because if you want to, you can. The book of James is very clear that one of the roles of pastors in the church, of elders in the church, is that we are supposed to pray for sick people. And so we do. We do this often. We do this every week when we pray over the directory. We pray for all of the members of our church several times a year. And if you tell us that you're sick, we'll pray for you on Tuesday morning. But you know what we also do is we have people from our church come to our elders meetings or some of us will go to your house and if you are sick, we will pray for you. So if you want prayer from the elders, let us know and we will pray for you. And you know what? We have prayed for people and they have been healed. Like right after. And it's amazing. But we have also prayed for people and they have died. They have not been healed. Does that mean we prayed wrong? Does that mean we don't have enough faith? No. That means that their healing is coming later. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to stress for us when he's going around and he's doing these miracles. Okay, we can't interpret these verses the wrong way and start to think that that we should see these healings all the time or that that somehow we deserve them or, or that there's something wrong with our faith if we don't see them. But no, what we should see in all of this 
is it's a picture of what God will do in the last day. Everything that Jesus is going around and doing now, it's like I said, it's proving that he has the authority of God. He's doing only the things that God can do and he is showing us what God will do in the last day. Everything in chapters eight and nine, this is just heaven stuff. Jesus going around and saying that the kingdom is here in part in me and this is what it looks like so that you know what to expect when the end comes, when I redeem everything. And that's why I say these teachers, they have a truncated gospel because they're focusing on this one aspect of redemption and they're forgetting about all of the other stuff. The reason Matthew brings up Isaiah 53 and the reason that he connects it to illness and diseases is because he wants you to remember where do illnesses and diseases come from? Why is there sickness in the world? Why is there suffering? Why is there death? Because of the fall into sin. And when the Messiah came to take our sins onto himself and die the death that we deserve to die, and more than that, to be raised to newness of life, That wasn't just to deal with sickness. That was to deal with all of it. That was to deal with all of the consequences of sin in this world. And he has. He has secured your healing. But it's not for this life. It's in that day. In that day, when when the kingdom comes in full, when we finally get to sit down at that table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there's not going to be any sickness anymore. But you know what? There's also not going to be any demons anymore. And there's not going to be any suffering anymore. And there's not even going to be sadness or crying anymore. There's not going to be death anymore because death has been swallowed up in victory and Jesus has covered the consequences of all of our sins. And that is our hope, even when we suffer right now in this life. So again, if you're here and you're sick, and I mean, dealing with physical sickness, dealing with that kind of suffering is one of the hardest things that we can do in this life. And many of you know that so much better than I do. You're suffering with some kind of sickness right now, or you have watched somebody succumb to an illness that could never be cured. It is so hard. And and again, I think it's right for us to pray and ask other people to pray that God would take that away. But if he doesn't know that one day he will, and we just wait, We wait for that in hope. And as we wait, let's not forget this, that Jesus has reached out and he has grabbed every one of our hands. And he's not going anywhere. He is God with us and he will be with us even to the end of the age, no matter what we suffer through. Let's pray. Yes, God, we thank you for the hope of future redemption, this hope that solves all of the suffering in this life, the hope that, that, Lord, is our only comfort when we have hard things happening. God, I pray that you would fill us more and more with that hope, that we would look at Jesus and we would see this picture of the heavenly reality on display for us, that he can remove diseases with a word. And God, we pray if there are people in this room right now that are sick or that are suffering with some kind of illness or disease, that, Lord, you would be willing to take that away. We pray that you would heal them. And we pray that you would help us to be a people that prays more and believes more that you can take away sicknesses and diseases. But Lord, please help us to not hope in that, but to hope in the redemption of all things that Christ has secured for us on the cross. And God, we do pray as we consider your plan to bring people from east and west into the kingdom of heaven, Lord, that you would use us for that purpose, that you would use us to go out from this place and to proclaim this good news that you make unclean people clean by the power of your word. 
We ask that you would do that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.